0: Best-selling author Thriti Amragar returns to India in her latest novel, *Honor*. Told through the lens of journalism, this richly imagined story is the finest portrait of urban-rural divisions I can recall reading. You're listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. Real Fiction Radio is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. It airs on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and exists as a podcast. On Real Fiction, I speak with novelists, journalists, poets, and changemakers to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories, reportage, and social impact. All Real Fiction Conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. I'll be back in a moment with author Thritti Amargar. My guest today is Thriti Umrigar. Her new novel is titled Honor. It was just published by Algonquin Press and has already been selected by national book clubs as a must-read. This is a novel that will crack you open. The story invites readers to think about how journalists do their job in challenging environments. The backdrop for this story is India with a focus on religious extremism urban and rural points of view. There is even a love story woven into this incredible book. Thriti Amragar is the best-selling author of eight novels, including The Space Between Us, which was a finalist for the Pen Beyond Margins Award, as well as a memoir and three picture books. Her books have been translated into several languages and published in more than 15 countries. She is Distinguished Professor of English at Case Western Reserve University, a recipient of the Neiman Fellowship to Harvard. She has contributed to the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, New York Times, and the Huffington Post. Joining me from Ohio to discuss her latest novel, Honor is Thritti Amargar. Thriti, welcome to Real Fiction. Hi, Laurie. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I love the setting for this book. Any readers who love big stories set in India, this is a must read. Uh, in fact, you write in the novel. India wasn't in a country so much as an unstoppable force of nature. And in fact, most of your or much of your fictional work has been set in India. And In your latest novel that we're discussing today, Honor, the reader gets to experience the cosmopolitan city of Mumbai and rural villages. Can you share something about the story's urban and rural portrait?
1: Yeah, that's that's actually a great question, Laurie, and I'll tell you why. Um, I think as much as this novel is about other things, you know, honor killings, um, sort of the redefining of honor, the the love story that you alluded to earlier, it very much, I think, in many ways is about the urban and rural divide, you know, with the rural part of the country, which, of course, even today you know, makes up the bulk. I mean, there's a, there's a saying that says India lives in its villages. And I think to some extent that is true, you know, and it's one of the reasons why it's hard sometimes for outsiders to understand how a country that is so advanced technologically uh, in so many ways can also still have the tug of tradition and customs and uh, patriarchy uh, be so powerful. Um, so, you know the two salient or the two major characters of the novel. Uh, one is Mina, who is basically uh, the daughter and the sister of of peasants. So she has spent her entire life in this very small, uh, very insular uh, village. Um, but Smita, who is the Indian American journalist, who sort of uh, comes to India to cover Mina's story. She clearly represents, um, not just, not just urban in terms of the fact that she's from New York, but also her whole sensibility. Smita, we find out, lived in India until she was 14 years old when she left with her f- entire family for the United States. But, uh, she, she clearly is a creature of the city. You know, she grew up in Mumbai. India's a sort of most cosmopolitan most western, most diverse uh, city. So she has a very urban orientation.
0: Yes, and the interaction between these two characters, Smita and Mina, the interactions are really thought-provoking they're they're moving and there's a passage in one of the a very tense scene and you write, could an upper west side therapist have shown greater psychological insight than Mina had? Could any priest, rabbi, or imam have shown a greater generosity in spirit than she had demonstrated? And I thought, my goodness, um Smita, who is, as you'd said, very urban, educated, traveled all over the world, has access to really anything that she wants, right. was really hearing Mina and really absorbing her. Her perspective on life. Can you talk about writing this kind of unlikely connection between these two women?
1: Yeah, I'm really, really happy that you zeroed in on this particular um, uh, insight that that Smita has, um, because one of the things I wanted very much to do in this novel is is I didn't want to write the typical, you know, um, this educated upper upper middle class uh, woman. Uh, steps into India and basically acts as a kind of savior uh, for this illiterate, you know, poor woman. Um, I, I wanted to sort of flip that narrative as much mm. as I could, and and really, really examine questions of well, who is the brave one here? Who is the wise one? Who is the one who understands something? You know, who is the one who displays compassion? And the, while I believe that they are both likable characters and likable people, um, Smita, to put it mildly, carries a lot of emotional baggage. Uh, and she brings that baggage to India with her. And although it's Mina who is sort of Um, you know, really brutalized by the patriarchy and, and, you know, this kind of religious strife and all of that, and almost in a literal sense has the scars to to prove that, you know, there is something surprisingly insightful and wise about her. And it's just her great big compassionate heart that she wears on her sleeve. And she in turn then you know, I wanted to sort of examine this teacher-student narrative, and as I said earlier, maybe maybe even flip it on its head to to really do a kind of examination of who is the real teacher and who is the student here. Mm-hmm.
0: When I think about that scene, and I think about how Smita is uh, forced to enter this story to cover Mina's sort of. Tragic case. Um, It makes me think about okay. Well, Smita is from this particular background. She's Indian American, as as you said, she has certain sensibilities. But she, it is clear that she would cover the story, perhaps even have access to the story in a different way than a typical foreign correspondent. So, I'd like to back up just a second. I, I had read that this novel was partially inspired by. Reportage that was written by the journalist Ellen Berry. Uh, what what drew you to Ellen's reportage? And was there something about about it, the the way that she wrote the stories that that provided a kind of lightning rod?
1: Yes, very much so. Um, I, I have always said that you know who knows if honor would have ever existed if I hadn't you know come across this really brilliant reporting. Um, uh, about the conditions of women, about the corruption of the police force. You know, all these were a series of stories that were sort of situated in rural India, um, covered by Ellen Berry. These were narrative journalism pieces. They were long form uh, journalism. So it really allowed, you know, it, it this was not shallow, um, you know, a 20 inch story reporting. Um, She had the space, she had the luxury of space, and boy, did she use it to tell these really, really revealing, they were almost like many um, character, personality profiles or character-drawn stories about conditions and life in rural India. Um, One dealt with the blowback that a group of women who decided to leave their very traditional homes and, and work in a, I think it was a meat packaging factory, if I'm not mistaken. But, but the punishments that they had to endure just for daring, you know, to earn their own living and accept a job outside the home. That, as if, since you've read Honor, you can see how directly that is connected. Uh, the inspiration for that came from those articles. Um, and, you know, they were marvelously written articles and deeply, deeply reported, and I didn't sense any of the kind of elitism and perhaps even snobbery that sometimes surmounts reporting uh, from India, especially by Western uh, journalists. And what can I say? I mean, those articles really, they shook me up. They made me shake my head in horror and ultimately, a couple of years later, they acted as a kind of blueprint or an inspiration for coming up with these fictional characters.
0: Mm, that's incredible. And you uh, anticipated uh, another question that I want to ask, which is that um, I wonder if you can talk about your own connection to India and, and how you observe stories that are written about India. Because as you've just described, Ellen did a a masterful job, a deep dive, um, and had the space to do that. But that's not the case with a lot of stories. And a lot of times we're having these conversations on this program and and other outlets, who gets to say what, who gets to write what. And I'm sure this comes uh, to play in uh, your work and in your classroom. But let's try to I would like to spend a little time here, just thinking about how you view the state of journalism in India, what, and what is your connection, and how do you just dis- how are you able to discern whether a foreign correspondent is adequately doing their job?
1: All right, so I should start answering this question with a whole lot of disclaimers. Uh, the first one being, um, you know, I was a journalist uh, myself for a very long time, but my entire career was in the United States you know i came to this country when i was 21 years old to get a masters in journalism and then my whole journalistic career was here i have never worked as a journalist in india and i frankly i haven't lived in india for many many decades so i don't know that i could speak to you know the state of journalism in india other than you know when i pick up a copy of a newspaper or magazine when i'm there for a visit Um, and and read it more. I mean, clearly with some kind of, you know, professional, with a professional gaze, but mostly I'm consuming the news just as most readers there would, with perhaps just a few more insights. So having said that, um, you know, I, because I guess, because of my journalistic background, I'm, I'm just a great believer in telling the truth um, and, and then letting the chips Fall where they might, and what I mean by that is, amongst my middle class relatives in India, there is definitely a kind of defensiveness about anything that's perceived as criticism uh, about India, you know, and and their uh, orientation or their uh, stance on this always is why does the west never talk about all the great things that are happening in india the mm. gdp is is greater than the gdp of the united states you know we produce more doctors and engineers and god knows who else you know than any nation on earth we have alleviated poverty by blah blah percent you know that kind of stuff right, right? Um, so so how come those stories don't get told and you know the stereotype of India is what the, the child in the village with the distended belly or a family living in a slum you know and I can't help but think that given the nature of many of my novels that talk about harsh things, maybe subconsciously or consciously I'm being indicted uh, in that criticism also, to some extent, um, and that's something that I actually have Smita reflect on when she talks about, you know, is is journalism merely sort of, am I trading in poverty porn, I think is the term she uses mm-hmm. when she's sort of second-guessing her motives and, and what exactly she's doing in India covering this story. But having said all that, my belief system is very different, you know, I, I feel like if you are ashamed of any fact that's being reported, either by an Indian journalist or a Western journalist, then you should be changing the fact and not the journalism, not the reporting of the fact. You you see where I'm coming from, Laurie? Um, I do. I, I feel like if 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 something is a source of embarrassment, then deal with the source and don't basically don't kill the messenger. And I would like to believe that I have the same critical stance towards my adopted country, the United States, as I do about my home country, um, India. And that's sort of just how I try and conduct myself. I mean, I think in some ways I'm perhaps more critical of things happening here uh, than I am in India because I feel like there's less excuses for us here. You know, we are, we have been in the past a fully functioning democracy. We have the economic power. And um, there's just no reason for things to be broken the way they are over here at times.
0: Yeah. And you know, and you were um, speaking, I'm thinking about a line that you have in the, the novel. And again, I want to remind listeners that my guest today is Thriti Amagar. We are discussing her latest novel, Honor, which was just published by Algonquin Press. You have a line in the novel that reads, you don't love something because you're blind to its faults. You love it despite its flaws. Yeah. So there is a, a, a strong light, a persistent lens on some of the challenges in India. But what i really fascinated by was how the character Mohan, who serves as a, we call it a fixer or a minder for Smita, who was doing journalist work, um, he's traveling with her to a conservative part of India. And this is a, a scene in which Smita must interview Mina's brothers. And I don't want to give too much away about the whys, but she is going to interview the brothers. And it's fair to say that there is an issue of family honor at stake. Right. And the, the term honor plays on many levels. But what happens in this scene is just remarkable. As a reader, I cannot possibly feel empathy for the brothers. And yet, <laughs> uh, there's a, a line that was is very powerful and stayed with me here's what it says. Smita knew in a flash what she had witnessed, the assertion of power by an educated, affluent man against someone of a lower status. Mohan telegraphing his dominance simply by striking the right tone and posture. Now, for me, that captures so well what I have come to admire about your writing. You really want the reader to understand all perspectives. And you're able to look at a character who probably not going to be too likable for the long run of a a novel, but you understand their perspective and uh, where they're coming from, where their life status places them.
1: Um, There's so many things I could say about this, but I guess I'll start by simply saying that, you know, I I really believe that my job, my duty as as a writer is not to excuse bad behavior but to understand it. Because I always feel like if I don't understand um the motivations of somebody who does something that, you know, I would I couldn't see myself do in a million years, right? But if I don't understand where they are coming from, how on earth can I expect to communicate that to the reader, right? So backstory in some ways is always important to me. And in some ways it's more important than even perhaps what's happening in, in narrative time. Um, Because we all, I mean, we bring to every day of our lives, everything that's gone before. Those are, those are the things that we carry into everyday life. So I think it's really, really important for me as as a writer to not not make excuses for bad behavior, but to certainly understand it. And then the second core belief that I have is that every human being, and I'm sort of kind of loosey goosey uh, lifting a line from my very first novel, Bombay Time, uh, and it says something to the effect of every human being basically carries the globe within them, so that everything that happens in the outside world, we are capable of imagining, thinking, perhaps sometimes acting on um, ourselves, you know, so every human being has that full range of of all possible human behavior. And some of us give in to certain impulses, and thankfully, the vast majority of us do not. But there's a kind of humility as a writer in, in believing that. And, and ultimately, you know, your, your entry level sort of job as a writer is empathy and imagination. You know, you have to bring those two qualities to bear on all characters, no matter how minor uh, they may be to the plot of your, of your novel. So I don't know that it's anything conscious, but it's just a lifetime of belief um, and and the last thing I'll say about that is one of the things, and Laurie, I think you might agree with me on this, one of the things I've always noticed is that nobody believes that they are the villain of their own stories, mm-hmm. you know? No matter what horrors people commit, they always have ways of justifying their behavior to themselves, you know? And and that's I, I was sort of thinking of all of that when I was creating this bundle of contradictions that are Mina's brothers.
0: Yes, I think one reason this novel resonates so strongly with me is that uh, I live on the East Coast, uh, urban areas. I have for many years, but my upbringing was in rural Nebraska. Okay. So when I read a story about um, The urban, sort of urban rural divide. I think, my goodness, we're so polarized in this country. And if we could cut through some of the polarizing noise, there would at least be an understanding of where the rural mindset is coming from. And that gets lost every day in the media. And uh, so that is why I think. A, a powerful piece of literature can be a reminder that when you get back to the basics and you think about a person's uh, backstory, their life, where they live, it rounds out our understanding of this country. Maybe you agree or don't agree, but that's that's how I've always seen it. No, and-
1: I completely agree. And you know, for me, the revelation was the very first time I traveled out west. I'm not talking about coastal uh, west. Yeah, I'm talking about you know Seattle and 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 San Francisco but just the middle of the country you know the rugged um you know um Utah you know places like that and yes. you just see the land itself you know you see the ruggedness of the land and honestly the very first time I visited these states I almost laughed out loud um I just couldn't help it it was just a spontaneous burst of laughter and I thought to myself oh my god Of course, the whole Western myth of the rugged individual and rugged individualism and all that, it, how could it be any other way? You know, if you are living in the mountains, you know, a mile away from your next neighbor, of course you're going to be self-reliant. Of course you're going to be self-sufficient. And then, Wouldn't that in turn affect your politics, how you feel about the federal government and all that? It was like this huge chunk, this puzzle just fell in place for me, you know? Um, So we are foolish to think that land and, and environment doesn't shape who we are and then collectively shape our politics. Of course it does.
0: Beautifully said. And uh, my great wish is that all of us could have uh, a greater dialogue
1: about about these we, things. We it's, almost it, need a foreign exchange program, except it should be a domestic exchange program.
0: <laughs> I love that. I want to remind listeners again, I guess today is Triti umargar Her latest novel is Honor, published by Algonquin Press. It is one of the must-reads of the year. It has layers of religion, class, gender, a lens on journalism, how journalists do their job. I encourage everybody to get a copy of Honor by author Thriti Amargart. Thriti, thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. It's really been a pleasure to have you on the program.
1: Oh, Laurie, you're so terrific at this. I mean, really, I just so enjoyed talking to you.
0: been listening to real fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. Real Fiction Radio is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. All Real Fiction Conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com where you can learn more about today's guest. Thanks for listening.